Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, world leaders have gathered in the resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for COP, the annual climate change conference. There is arguably no issue more demanding than the climate emergency. But just over 350 miles away, on the other side of Egypt, a British citizen is trapped in prison, close to death. His crime? Sharing a social media post. This week on The Slow Newscast, we tell the story of his fight for freedom as we search for the answer to a question. What is the cost of our climate diplomacy? I'm handing over to reporter Ruth Michelson. I was speechless when I saw him. I was very shocked because he looked so frail and I couldn't move past it. I fixed on his eyes because his eyes looked really strange. They looked sunken and they looked just unreal. And I kept on looking at him and I tell him, Ale, you're buddy. You've lost so much weight. You're not there. Ale Abdel Fattah is in prison. Today is day 184 of his hunger strike. Uh, it's day 200 of the hunger strike. Today is day 213 of his hunger strike. And time is running out. You don't have to ignore us because you think this is inevitable. He's just going to die. Alain is locked away inside Wadi al-Natrun, a notorious prison in the Egyptian desert. His charges say he's a threat to national security. But his only crime, if you can call it that, is sharing a social media post about torture. He's become one of the Middle East's best-known political prisoners. A writer, technologist, a symbol of protest not just in Egypt, but around the world. He does mean a lot to me. Um, I I think about his case every day, multiple times a day. And I I think just as a writer, he means a lot to me. Alaire's story is intertwined with Egypt's recent history, a story of mass uprisings, widespread human rights abuses, and violent crackdowns. I have been following his case since... Since his first arrest in the midst of the revolution. A story of a family targeted by their own government for years for daring to speak out against these abuses. As Aleh refuses food and even water inside his desert prison cell, hundreds of miles away, the eyes of the world are focused on the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. There, Egypt is playing host to one of the biggest diplomatic events in the world, 
COP27, the United Nations annual climate conference attended by world leaders. Just as it is about to start, Ali is escalating his strike to include water. He is going to stop drinking water. In reality, this means that Ali has decided that the final chapter of our very long is finally here, our very long story. The Egyptian authorities want to keep the global spotlight on this event and for the international delegations arriving in Sharm el-Sheikh to ignore Egypt's human rights record. For some, the existential crisis of climate change trumps all. For others, this represents a moment for Egypt to greenwash its reputation as the world's media descends. I'm Ruth Michelson. This is the slow newscast from Tortoise. This week, Egypt's bad cop. The story of Allah Abdel Fattah, a British citizen who is fighting to his last breath to highlight Egypt's human rights abuses. All while the country's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, basks in the reflected glory of hosting a prized diplomatic meeting. I lived and reported in Egypt for almost six years until the government forced me out because of my reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. I continue to report on Egypt, and I've continued to keep a close eye on what's happening to Ele. Most people who visit Egypt will thankfully never have to make the journey to Wadi al-Natrun prison, which lies in the desert two hours northwest of Cairo. It was once nicknamed the Valley of Hell. It's since been refurbished and enlarged to a sprawling circular complex where the buildings fan out like spokes on a wheel. They call it the new American-style prison. There's a lot of PR on it and there was like a TV commercial about how lovely this prison is. <laughs> and so it looks like, it looks like the American, it's, it's, it's a big, big building, but it's like there is a garden outside and, and things like that. Alain has been locked up there since May this year. Before that, he was imprisoned in Cairo, where the authorities kept him isolated, with little ventilation, no electricity, and almost no natural light. He was beaten when he arrived. It was there that he began his hunger strike, demanding better conditions and freedom for the thousands of political prisoners like him. And it got results, to an extent. The move meant he's now able to sleep on a mattress and has access to books. But he also has to spend every day in a cell where the overhead fluorescent lights never turn off and cameras record his every move. He shivers under a fan that runs even in the winter months. And he is so isolated that he can only speak to his guards via an intercom. His family can visit him for 20 minutes each month, where they speak to him through a clear partition. And so Elair perseveres with the hunger strike. In fact, he's now intensifying it. Ale is not bluffing. He's fueled by hope to be reunited with us and rage at the nine years stalling from his life. I'm scared for him, but I agree with his decision. There is no reason to endure prison, but Ale has the agency to at least choose the timeline for his death and to choose to have his funeral in the worst PR moment for Sisi. 
Egypt's dismal record on human rights goes back decades. And Alaire's own story shows this better than most. He was first arrested in 2006 for demanding an independent judiciary and Egypt was ruled by autocrat Hosni Mubarak. He's been imprisoned under almost every president since. Describe him for me as, you know, a person that's never met him and what was it like to grow up with him and start there? Ale is, um, Ale is my older brother. That's Sana Asif, Ale's youngest sister. But I'm also a human rights activist uh, who was imprisoned several times in Egypt. And so, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm the youngest in general, but the age difference between me and Ale is 13 years. So to me, Ale is not like there, we have this relationship where like when, when I grew up, we were more of peers, but he, he's also kind of a mentor figure, if you like, friend and also father figure because of the age difference. But he's also a nerd and obsessive about having the right kind of software to program. Linux, in case you were wondering. Some people know him just from his work as a computer programmer and advocate of open technology. If you meet Ale, the first thing you'll think of is he's, he's, a, he's a geek. He's like such a, a geek, you know, not just because that's his job. He programs, but he just he reads about every single thing and knows and loves to like absorb information. But he has, and that's something in the family. Like my family is like, my mom is a mathematician and we're, uh, I come from a long family of ac academics, but we also have a side of us that are artists. My aunt is a writer and Ale has an, a nice mix of both. So he's, yeah, this kind of like a, a geek, but who also loves art and absorbs it. It's part of his activism. It's about providing tools uh, providing platforms to empower people to just speak out their minds or things like that. Alaire and Sana are from a family that has never shied away from speaking up about injustice. They've also developed their own love language for managing the pressure from the government. Each time one of them has been imprisoned, the family sends them a copy of their favourite comic book to read, Mickey, one that they all loved as kids. This love language extends to Alaire's young son, Khalid born while Alaire was detained in 2011. After he was born, and Alaire held him in his arms for the first time, he wrote, Now I understand why I'm in prison. They want to deprive me of joy. My happiness is resistance. Holding Khalid is continuing the struggle. To Sana'a and much of Alaire's family, the man famous for his activism and his writing is an inspiration too. He's very generous in that, not in this... Like not just in the practical sense of being generous, but he, because he's so passionate about discovering things, so he can sit with you. And if you're like, I don't know, whenever like I'm thinking of where my life could be going, am I interested? And Ale was always this person who's like, every time he's as excited and he's like, he does the research and he's like, okay, so we go to these people. That's where you go to learn, uh, maybe read those books. He can put time just to to study whatever you're interested in and try and help you discover it. Their father was a well-known human rights lawyer. Alain, in particular, has worked to try and inspire others towards change. 
this ability to inspire meant his personal story collided with history. As millions of Egyptians took to the streets in 2011 to demand the downfall of dictator Hosni Mubarak, Alaire was in South Africa. He spent his days calling friends and family in Egypt to post news of the revolution for the world to read on his blog. Alaire's the kind of thinker that, for many, gave the revolution its voice. And soon, as the protests grew, he decided to return to Cairo. And he was inspired and he just, he booked the first uh, plane ticket he could find and he came back on, uh, so the, the uprising started on the 25th of Jan, Ale came back on February. And because of his prominence before that, he became kind of, a, he became a symbol in that movement. Sana and Ale are reunited in Cairo's Tahrir Square, the epicentre of the revolution. And then I saw him in the square and I was like, you're back. And he said, yeah, I think I'm back for good. <laughs> yeah, we were uh, very naive and inspired then. <laughs> and as the demonstrations grew more powerful, Ale became a figurehead for the 2011 protest movement. Writing in the country's largest state newspaper, one Egyptian journalist even said that Ale's name was synonymous with the revolution. 18 days of protest ultimately ended Hosni Mubarak's three decades in power, but Ale knew the battle for the country's future had only just begun. Egypt's military remained powerful, and it had him in its crosshairs. And it wasn't long before he got arrested for the second time. The authorities accused him of inciting violence against the military after he wrote an article about a protest in which the army killed 27 people and injured hundreds more. For many, he remains a symbol of hope, of possibility. His name rung out as thousands marched through the streets of Cairo to demand his freedom. This hope that Egypt, the Arab world's most populous nation, could fully transform into a democracy was short-lived. In the summer of 2013, former defense minister, General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, swept to power in a coup. The country returned to military rule. Soon afterwards, security forces raided Alaire's home in the middle of the night and detained him. He's imprisoned for a third time accused of breaking a new law that essentially banned protest. While in prison, the situation outside worsens. Sisi targets his political opponents, arrests journalists, and shuts down any independent groups. A 67-year-old former general who rose up through the country's fearsome security services, Sisi is known for his hatred of politics and his ruthless attitude towards dissent. Even citizens who protested against fare hikes on the Cairo metro wrote comments critical of the government on Facebook, were detained in raids by security forces and sentenced to years in detention. This is far from the democracy Alaire fought for back in 2011. Sana, at this point, feared the worst for Alaire. The messages we got from people who were close to the regime, like really close, who talked to Sisi personally, 
about Ale. Several times people came back saying, oh, he's very angry. He doesn't want to hear those names. He's personal about those names. And so I was, that was for me, I, that was sinking in. And so I was, I was kind of starting to realize how they're stubborn about Ale. And so I, I wasn't, like, I didn't expect that he would be out, honestly. I was like, they will just do something to keep him in prison. Ale finally left prison in March 2019. But the terms of his parole meant he was forced to sleep every night on the floor of his local police station. Later that year, a spate of anti-corruption protests, this time against Sisi, broke out across Egypt. Alaire had no involvement in them, but it was too late. Tainted by association with the protests from 2011, he was arrested and held without charge for two years. He was sentenced to another five years in prison last year. This time, he was accused of spreading false news for sharing a social media post about torture. I'm not sure why it is personal. Like, I, uh, years of my life were wasted in trying to figure out why would... <laughs> Abdel Fattah Sisi even know about my brother's existence. <laughs> Imagine being personal about him. His sister, Sana, was in prison too. Plainclothes security agents had snatched her from the street. She and her family gone to complain to the authorities that they'd been assaulted outside the prison where Ella was held. Sana was charged with spreading false news and inciting terrorism. And here is where things were supposed to change for Alain. The British government came in. Both Sana and Alain gained British citizenship from inside prison late last year, through their mother, who was born in London. Sana said they'd been looking for a way out, even before they were arrested, because of the messages they were getting from the Egyptian authorities. These were not subtle threats. There was no longer empty promises of, if you just wait for... It was just consistent. That's it. He, he's going to... The plan is for him to remain in prison. Even the messages that were being sent to me were like, leave the country um, because this is a sinking ship. You have to... You just have to forget about your family. It's not, it's not going to happen. And so we were exploring every single option. And that's when we uh, we started seeing, like, can we do something about my mom's citizenship? Can she complain, especially because she was she was beaten up? With both Sana and Ala in prison, their sister Mona figured out the paperwork needed to issue their passports. Sana signed hers from a cage inside a prison courtroom. She was granted a consular visit and was later able to leave the country and move to London. But the situation for Alain is completely different. Egypt has prevented British officials from visiting in prison for an entire year. This has also spurred Alain's hunger strike. One of his demands is a consular visit from British officials. And so this is how we come, at the time of this recording, to day 216 of Alain's hunger strike. I understand that he has tried as much as possible to endure the nightmare he was forced to live. This is Mona, Alaire's other sister. And nine years is more than enough for any human being. 
more than enough. So with that decision, with Ali's decision, that means that probably before COP27 ends in Egypt, unless something drastic changed in the way the Egyptian government and the UK government are dealing with Ali's case, he will die in prison. There are thousands of prisoners currently locked up across Egypt on charges just as fabricated as Ale's. The number of political prisoners is said to number up to 65,000, and Sisi has overseen the construction of several new prison complexes since coming to power in order to make room. One of these is the fearsome Bada III complex, where on November 1st, a 47-year-old named Ale El-Selmi died while serving a life sentence. Al-Selmi had spent two months on hunger strike in protests at his detention conditions. Medical neglect in Egypt's labyrinthine system of detention is common, and former prisoners say the Egyptian authorities simply don't care if people die in jail. Two years ago, to name one example among the hundreds, a young Egyptian filmmaker named Shadi Habash died in his cell after his fellow inmates say he drank hand sanitizer. Whether this was to commit suicide, or by mistake, it was unclear. But Habash died on the floor of his cell because the prison authorities ignored his cellmate's cries. But in many ways, Alaire is different. He now has dual nationality, and having another government to advocate you is supposed to change things. It's meant to mean something. Dual nationals from America and from France have been freed from Egyptian prison in recent years. Yet as the world turns its attention to Egypt and focuses on climate diplomacy, a citizen of last year's host country lies locked away in the new host country. The Foreign Office says it's raised Alaire's case at the highest levels of the Egyptian government. They told us they are working very hard to secure his release. But outwardly, nothing has changed. Sana says this quiet, backroom style of diplomacy has allowed the Egyptian government to call the shots and that not enough has been done to free her brother. We're not, so technically we are, yes, we are British citizens, but I, I do sense it and I know it and I feel it, that the British government is not dealing with Ale as a British citizen per se. He's like half British citizen maybe. It's a new citizenship. He's not... Like, if Alet was a different profile, if we were born here, maybe if we were white, it would have been different. But I think that's a stupid way to think because this is going to be precedence and it is going to be precedence with a British citizen. If Alet dies in prison, if they allow this to happen, no matter how the authorities in, in the UK now feel like they, he's not entirely that British. It is precedence. And it is going to create precedence for others. The British authorities' unwillingness to push for Alaire's freedom is made even more frustrating by the cooperation that's happening elsewhere. Britain is one of Egypt's largest private trading partners, and the development arm of the Foreign Office recently declared it would fund $100 million worth of projects in Egypt. Alaire recently told his family that he expects to die in prison. His decision to stop drinking water means it could happen soon. But Sanaa says she is refusing to give up. She's hoping to appeal 
to the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly. If you could get James Cleverly to understand one thing about that situation, what would it be? It's doable. It's, I would explain to him that it's doable. You don't have to ignore us because you think this is inevitable. He's just gonna die. It's doable, it's simple. It's not gonna ruin your relationship with Egypt. It's only gonna do good. Just don't be so weak about it. <laughs> On the same day that Alain reached 200 days on hunger strike, Sanaa began a sit-in outside the Foreign Office. Her protest is designed to force James Cleverly to pay attention. She's sleeping in a tent, surrounded by pictures of Alain and his son Khalid, with a sign that reads, James Cleverly, bring my brother home. I feel like I need to be doing this. I'm, I'm really angry <laughs> that there hasn't been any progress, and so I'm... I'm happy that I'm doing something about it. We keep getting assurances that everybody's on board, but I, I, I don't see anything happening. I, I don't care how they go about it. I care about like having my brother safe, but uh, obviously it's, it hasn't been working. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Last October, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry announced that Egypt had been selected as Africa's nominee to host the next COP. 
wasn't clear who the other nominees were, or if there were other nominees. The news reached Sana'a in prison. I heard it uh, on the radio by like state media, Egyptian state media. So I heard it from the government's propaganda. So it was scary. They were like, ah, so the world has its attention on Egypt and now they know because we are serious. And uh, thanks to our president, uh, everybody realizes the, the new um, Republic and uh, pres- uh, and how President Abdel Fattah Sisi is building beautiful new Egypt and uh, things like that. Diplomats, climate negotiators, world leaders and activists will gather in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh to try and shape a global response to the climate crisis. Sanat will join them as an observer. This conference is happening at a crucial moment for Egypt and for the world. African nations are some of the most vulnerable to climate impacts, despite contributing just 3.4% of yearly global emissions. And so in some ways, Egypt hosting is fitting. But there are also plenty of questions about what it means to hold essential negotiations in a military dictatorship that bans protest and jails dissidents like Alain. Climate activist Greta Thunberg says she won't attend COP27 because the space for civil society is so limited in Egypt. She even visited Sana'a's sit-in outside the foreign office in Whitehall. Her choice is clear. Human rights should not be forgotten in pursuit of preventing a climate disaster. We spoke to a number of officials involved in previous COPs. They told us that Egypt was chosen in a nomination process among African countries. They said there were few countries on the continent who were willing or able to host thousands of delegates. There was some concern about human rights. But the officials we spoke to were more worried about whether Egypt would actually do an effective job of negotiating essential emission cuts. Would they instead prioritise pushing for financial assistance to cover the cost of climate disasters? Alok Sharma, the UK's COP26 president, who will be in Sharm el-Sheikh, told us he had personally raised concerns about the treatment of protesters. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I actually uh, went to Egypt in, in, in January, you know, effectively straight after COP26, and I sat down and had a very detailed discussion with my uh, my, my counterpart, the, the new uh, uh, the COP president-designate, Sami Shukri, is also the, the, the foreign minister uh, for Egypt. And we went through, um, you know, all the learnings from the UK, and amongst the points I made, I was very clear that actually it's really vital that civil society has a strong showing at a COP. Uh, We were very keen to ensure that at COP26, and also that, uh, as happens at every COP, there is uh, an ability for uh, civil society, for youth groups to be able to uh, protest. Our reporting suggests Egypt's bid to host was accepted from the start. In other words, there was no real process to speak of. No process through which to raise human rights as an issue. In fact, international support for Egypt is pretty clear. Earlier this year, the country received $6.2 million from the European Union and the African Climate Foundation to support them in hosting the conference. Egypt has promised to allow protests at COP27. But demonstrators will be in a purpose-built zone out in the desert, well away from where the actual conference is taking place. In an interview with a local TV channel, One Egyptian official described it as chic. It's got restaurants, cafes, 
and a few palm trees. And worryingly, protesters will need special permission to enter. Everything that we have won in the climate movement, and we have not won enough. Author and professor of climate justice, Naomi Klein, says Allaire's case shows us that it's impossible to separate discussions about climate change and the environment from human rights. We, you know, we are starting to see some, you know, impressive rollouts of renewable energy. We are starting to see um, some, you know, depending on the country, some some significant resources going to frontline communities. We are, certainly our politicians have started to say the right things, that we're in an actual climate emergency. We've got a long way to go. But the extent to which we've won these things uh, is intimately connected to our ability to exercise political freedoms. You know, it all of this is connected to our ability to engage in investigative journalism, follow the money, call out the polluters, disrupt, occupy offices. You know, I think about the reason why we talk about a Green New Deal, which is something we'll hear about a lot at COP, that got on the map because a bunch of young people who were part of the Sunrise Movement occupied Nancy Pelosi's offices, and then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came in and joined them and cheered them on and then, you know, introduced a piece of legislation that... Uh, that was not in line with what her party stood for, but that changed the whole political debate in the U.S. presidential election. Everything we do in the climate movement that has any impact at all, and forget direct action, just like our communication and our research, all of it is criminalized in Egypt. So to the extent that we have made some gains, it's because of our political freedoms. It's not because our politicians wanted to do the right thing, we have had to drag them kicking and screaming. Klein also hasn't been shy to call out the parts of the climate justice movement who she says aren't talking about Allaire's case, fearing what it means for their role in the COP27 talks. And that is frankly what allowed the movement to kind of sleepwalk into this situation where where a lot of people, I'll be honest with you, are just now realizing that they are about to go into a police state. They didn't even really, they weren't following what's going on in Egypt. And I mean, I think, I guess some of it we can understand. You know, we live in a time where a hell of a lot's going on, but I don't know. I don't think you kind of should be booking hotel rooms without (laughs) checking into what you're doing. And that's why I say I think we're living through a, a true failure of international solidarity. And against this backdrop, the UK and Egypt are talking frequently as the UK hands over the COP presidency. This means that Alok Sharma's team regularly speak to the Egyptian foreign ministry, who are not only responsible for the COP, but also oversee Allaire's case, since now he's a British citizen. This naturally begs the question, are they mentioning Allaire's case at all? Alok Sharma told us they are. Uh, in, the, in, in, in the case of uh, Allah uh, Al-Fatah, we obviously on a government-to-government basis, raise uh, his his issue uh, very regularly. Um, we had Gillian Keegan, who's a minister in the Foreign Office until very recently, who, during her visit to Egypt, uh, raised this issue directly with Foreign Minister Shukri. The, the Foreign Secretary as well, James Cleverly, uh, raised this issue with uh, with Minister Shukri at the UN last month. And we take every opportunity to, to um, you know, raise this particular issue. I mean, uh, human rights matters to us, and it matters to very many countries. But this idea of quiet diplomacy, the softly, softly approach that the British government seems to favour, is exactly the kind of thing 
that Sanaa says is allowing the Egyptian authorities to ignore Alaire's case. Do you think they understand what the stakes are? That they might, members of this government might be about to fly to a country that has allowed one of their own citizens to die in prison? I, I don't think, no, I, I don't think the British government and understand the stakes. I think a lot of people don't understand. I don't understand the stakes because I know that if if we get a consular visit, if the embassy team goes in and sees him, things would be different because then they will understand the stakes. The Egyptian government wants COP27 to be about discussions of the environment that never touch on human rights or politics at all. The government wants visitors to ignore their record of cracking down on protests, detaining political prisoners like Ale and thousands like him. Sanaa and the rest of Ale's family fear that the British government will let them get away with this. Ale's story matters on a global level. He's gone from a symbol of hope to the embodiment of Egypt's crackdown on its own people and the counter-revolution that's taken hold since 2013. He's now more than seven months into his hunger strike. Sanaa recalls exactly what a hunger strike is like. She once did the same thing in prison. So at first, the body relies on extra fat. And then when the extra fat is, uh, is gone, the body starts breaking muscles to get, uh, to get energy. After muscles, it, it moves to like the more important kinds of fat, the fats that keep the body intact, that are between organs. Last time I saw Ali, friends, in, in August, I was really worried from how his eyes looked because his eyes looked really sunken. And my understanding is that the fats behind the eye are like the fats around the kidney. And so that means, although he's he can't stand on his feet for a while, he's, he has to kneel on some things. As much as Senna is determined to save her brother, she also understands the physical risks he's facing. This is clearly a man closer to, to death than, than life. I don't know if, I don't think there is a way to know because everybody reacts differently. There isn't a way without proper medical tests and without uh, attention to know like where exactly is he on a, in the danger level? Like is he, can he live another month or not? Maybe. Last June, Alaire passed Mona a message about COP27. Of all the countries to host, they chose the one banning protest and sending everyone to prison, which tells me how the world is handling this issue. They're not interested in finding a joint solution for the climate, he said. It's probably fair to say that Alaire saw this coming. British government ministers, including Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, will be in Sharm el-Sheikh. There's little evidence so far to suggest that they will use this opportunity to free one of their own citizens currently dying in prison in Egypt while they're in the country for talks. It really looks like the Egyptians might get their way. In other words, it might be business as usual. A week before COP started, Alaire wrote his family a letter. In it, 
he said on day 214, after more than seven months of hunger strike, that he would escalate further. He would cut out his 100 calories and drink only water. And on the 6th of November, the day the COP began, he would cut everything out, including water. The human body can live without water for an estimated three days. Alain, at the time of recording, is still alive. Here's part of what he wrote to his mother, read out by his sister. You know the story, but it's important that I tell it again. A reminder of the darkness that lies behind COP27. The journey, I've walked it while mostly looking behind me because I could see nothing in front of me except extinction, the abyss. Gradually, with each step, each delay, something reached me, from a visit, from a letter, from a book, an image, from the news of the campaign, news of Khalid, my son. Things changed, and I started looking towards the future, a future for us as a family. If one wished for death, then a hunger strike would not be a struggle. If one were only holding on to life, the decision was taking while I'm flooded with your love and longing for your company. Much love until we meet soon. Ale. This episode was reported by me, Ruth Michelson, Jeevan Vazagal, and Barney McIntyre. The producer was Matt Russell, with sound design by Tom Birchall. The editor was Jasper Corbett. Thanks for listening this week. Tortoise has been at COP in Egypt, and you can follow our coverage in the Daily Sensemaker podcast. To listen, just search for The Sensemaker. And just before you go, if you enjoy listening to the Slow Newscast, please do give our feed a follow on whatever podcast platform you listen on. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. If you enjoy the Slow Newscast, you might also enjoy the We Society podcast. It's from the Academy of Social Sciences, and in each episode, host Will Hutton untangles the grand challenges we face as a society through a social science lens. He's gathered some of our country's most groundbreaking and influential social scientists to ask how their research could help solve some of the UK's and the world's most pressing problems. In the coming season, the We Society will tackle Britain's ailing high streets, bankrupt councils and the continued lack of disability inclusion, as well as other similarly important subjects. So if you want to hear research-led insights and solutions and a great conversation, look up The We Society on all podcast platforms.